Well, uh, today we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark, but as Pastor Aaron mentioned last week, while we love teaching through whole books of the Bible, we're having to jump around a little bit in order to make all the big pieces fit in, in our pass at Mark this time around because we want to get finished up with the series right after Easter so that we can then bring you our next series, which is on our mission, and we'll be talking about our core values and about covenant membership and what the Bible has to say about each of those things. And so in the meantime, we will We'll be jumping around a little bit. That'll continue today, uh, just as we did last week. Uh, last week we were talking uh, in chapter seven about where uh, Jesus, about what Jesus wants us to do with respect to wholehearted devotion to Him, rather than having heartless rituals and works be the basis of our relationship with Him. And now this week we move to chapter ten. We jump ahead, and we're going to be talking, as Aaron mentioned, uh, about Jesus' children and the kingdom of God. Jesus, children in the kingdom of God, and that's the title of our message for today. Our primary text today will be in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And because we believe that there is power in the simple reading and hearing of the proclaimed word of God, I want to read those verses for us first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work after that. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles up if you haven't already to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And then I'll read that for us. Starting in 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Sound City, may we be blessed by the hearing of the word of our Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these friends, for this family that you've gathered here today. I thank you for the mission you've given us to bring glory to your name by proclaiming your word, receiving grace, being disciples, making disciples. And I pray that you would help every one of us here to be found faithful in our charge. Protect me and help me, God, as I share your word with these friends. Get me out of the way, I pray, God. Help them to hear your voice rather than mine. And teach each of us, myself included, exactly what you want us to get from this little but really powerful passage from Mark's gospel. I do pray you teach us now, God, and I pray all these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, there's a saying that's often heard in the hallways of good Bible-believing seminaries that goes something like this. Interpreting the text without context is a pretext for a proof text. You guys ever heard that? Interpreting the text without context is a pretext for a proof text. And what that means to say, of course, is that if we're not careful to provide really good context to our consideration of any verse in Scripture, any passage in Scripture, then we're setting ourselves up to be poor interpreters of God's Word who either unintentionally or worse, intentionally try to use God's word to say something that we want it to say, but that it doesn't actually say. And that's not what we want to do. Rather, we want to be those who only pull from Scripture what's already inherent in Scripture. And so with that idea in mind, let's gather a little context for our passage so we can be faithful interpreters of it as we dig into it. So maybe the first good question for gathering context for us would be, what's been going on in the book of Mark between chapter 7, where we were last week, and chapter 10, where we start today? 
Well, without digging into all the details of the various goings-on in those chapters, what we find is that Jesus' traveling ministry of teaching and healing and exorcisms and miracles and not-so-subtle shows of his own divinity, all that's been continuing in the chapters between 7 and where we are today. Based on what we can glean from other chapters in Mark and also from uh, parallel passages in Matthew 18 and 19 and also in Luke 18, we also know that Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Capernaum south toward Jerusalem, where they'll arrive at the beginning of Mark chapter 11. Now, we won't get there today, uh, but that's uh, what will be happening uh, here shortly. But here in our passage today and throughout chapter 10, what we find is Jesus on this, on this journey with his disciples to Jerusalem, and we find him teaching them a set of really paradoxical truths what I mean by that, of course, is a, is a paradox, is, is this idea of a difficult truth that, on the surface at least, seems really contradictory to what reason might suggest. For example, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, he's teaching about divorce and marriage and this paradoxical idea that two people can actually become one flesh. We find that in verse 8. And then on the other side of the passage we'll be covering today, in verses 17 through 31, Jesus is teaching the disciples this paradoxical lesson about how the first will actually be last, and the last will actually be first. And that's in verse 31, where he pulls that together for them. Then right in between, sandwiched right in between these two teachings is our text for today, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus is teaching another paradoxical idea. This time he's teaching them that God requires adults to become like children. God requires adults to become like children. And what we'll see as we continue is that the central proposition, you guys know that language, it's that the big idea of the text is really born out of this paradoxical teaching that God requires adults to become like children. That's going to be our big idea today. And to take it a step further than just adults becoming like children, this is the central idea that salvation requires the faith of a child. Salvation requires the faith of a child. We're going to unpack that as we go, but we're, we're not there just yet. So let's slow down a little bit, and we'll go verse by verse through this short passage, and uh, we'll dig into it a little bit and see if we can uncover everything God wants us to learn there. So we'll start again with verse 13. It begins, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So the theys and thems, those always get my attention as I'm reading a text, and they probably do for you as well. So what's, who's the they, and who is it that's bringing children to Jesus? Well, remember, we know that Jesus and his disciples were, were traveling to Jerusalem, and as you'll recall from previous chapters, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's always quite a commotion, right? There's lots of people that come from all around. They've heard about him and uh, maybe a little bit about who he is and what he's done so they want to come and see him. They, they might want to come and touch him. They might uh, want to come and learn a little bit uh, from his teachings. So here in 13, probably what we've got going on is parents that are really interested in this Jesus that they've heard about, and probably even more likely, mostly mothers, with their, coming with their children and bringing them to Jesus uh, just to see what might happen and that he might touch them, verse 13 says. It's worth noting here that the particular Greek word that's being used for children here probably means anyone from birth up to around 12 years of age. And so it's children younger than the age of puberty or right around that age that are generally being brought to Jesus here. And so they're bringing these children to Jesus that he might touch them. Why were they doing this? Well, 
probably not surprising to you, it was pretty customary for uh, you to want your children to be blessed by a rabbi, and so that's not really unreasonable to uh, think that they might bring little ones to Jesus. We also know that in Jesus' day, that touching a holy man or even his clothing or even better being touched by him would perhaps bring healing was the thought. And we've seen that in previous weeks already, right? In this study, we've seen Jesus do that. For example, in Mark 5, where we saw the woman who had this uh, disease where she was bleeding for for years on end, it seems, from the text, and uh, she wanted to touch Jesus' cloak because she thought that even if she just touched his clothes, that she would be healed. And she goes and she does that, and Jesus feels power go out from him, and uh, he actually does heal her. And so we've seen examples like that uh, throughout the Gospels. We see it in Luke 6, we see it in Luke 8, we see it again in Luke 22, we see it uh, all over the place, really. So bringing, Jesus, bringing children to Jesus, or bringing anyone, really, to Jesus would not have been without precedent. So that's not unusual. So they're bringing these children to Jesus that he might touch them, and then it continues, and the disciples rebuked them. So Jesus' disciples are rebuking the parents from bringing the children to Jesus. But rebuke is a really strong word. Remember, this is what Jesus did uh, with the demons when he was rebuking them from, during exorcisms. And he was causing them to come out of those that they were tormenting. And so the disciples are doing this pretty aggressive thing, this, making this really aggressive move, probably physically and verbally blocking parents from approaching Jesus with their children. Why? Why would they be doing that? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us in, in our day where children are often, at least in our country, idolized, right? Where parents' identities are often tied up in the performance of the greatness of their children and in their children's achievements. But in Jesus' day, it was the adult male that was primarily prized and valued. Children were of very little value. They were of very little worth. And so the disciples probably think they're uh, doing him a big favor here, helping him protect his time helping him uh, conserve his strength for serving those who were more important and more worthy. Yet he'd already told the disciples about this at least once. In uh, Mark 9, 33 through 37, the disciples are arguing about which one of them was the greatest, which seems like a a really mature thing for the disciples of Jesus to be doing, right? Um, They're arguing about who is greatest, and Jesus takes a child into his arms and tells them, The one of you who would be the greatest, by the way, is the one who would make himself last in order to serve one such as these. And he's holding a child. So it's kind of unexpected that they would be responding this way in chapter 10. He's just been teaching them this in chapter 9, and already they're needing a reminder. But I'll make a confession to you guys. Uh, It probably shouldn't make me feel good, but it sometimes makes me feel better about my own walk with Jesus when I see uh, his first disciples seem like such slow learners. Is that just me? Just me, okay. Well, that brings us to verse 14. Let's continue. But when Jesus saw this, when he saw uh, the disciples getting between the children and him and, and, and telling them not to come, and uh, he was indignant, it says. He, he was indignant. And he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus sees them rebuking the children and the parents from coming, and he says, let them come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is a really severe response from Jesus. And this is actually, interestingly, the only passage in the Gospels where Jesus is indignant about anything. 
It's a really strong word. It means aroused to anger. It means to vent one's great displeasure. The King James Version of the Bible actually translates this Greek phrase as Jesus being much displeased. But that's really far too tame for what's going on here. Jesus is openly rebuking in public his disciples for getting in the way of these children coming to him. The message paraphrase translation of the Bible actually gets it closer to the mark. It says, Jesus was irate and he let them know it. That's actually much closer to what's meant here. And if we're careful, if we pause here for a minute, we can actually learn quite a lot from this response. Not surprisingly, maybe, the object of a person's indignation reveals a great deal about them, right? As sinners, often what makes us angry tells us and others a lot about our idols and our false saviors. But for Jesus, and even for us on our more spirit-led occasions and our more spirit-led moments, our displeasure and indignation can reveal what some have called a holy discontent. So what's Jesus' holy discontent? What's the source of his indignation in this case? Let's keep going, and I think we'll see it along the way. The second half of verse 14 continues with an irate Jesus, and he's saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the tone that's actually in the Greek doesn't really come through in the English well here. It's less of this gentle, let the children come. Like When I read it that way, it almost sounds like there's like this harp playing in the background or something, and it's this gentle, ethereal let the children come to me. But like, that's not what the text says, and that's not uh, what he's trying to communicate at all. It's, it's indignant. He's saying, stop forbidding them from coming to me. He's angry. He's indignant. And next he begins to tell us a little bit about why. Why he's irate that the disciples would hinder the children from coming to him. At the end of verse 14, he says, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the preposition for here is causal, so it's, it means because. So Jesus is commanding the disciples, stop forbidding them from coming to me because to such belongs the kingdom of God. So why was Jesus so irate with the disciples' actions? Well, just from that little surface reading that we just did, it must have something to do with these children and their relationship to God's plan for who will and won't be participating in the eternal kingdom. That's what it seems like anyway. The disciples are getting in the way of God's kingdom business here. And on top of that, this is at least the second time in recent days where Jesus has had to remind them of the value of children and those like children, right? I just mentioned to you guys a minute ago in Mark 9, 33 through 37, where the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is among them. And Jesus says, the one who would serve and put first ones like these. So perhaps that's part of what he's frustrated about as well with them, because this is ground that he's just recently covered with them. But what does Jesus mean when he says, to such belongs the kingdom? Who's he referring to there when he says this? I think it's one of the most important questions that we're going to address here today, actually, and it's at the heart of what I think God wants to teach us. So let's spend some time on that. Some have taken Jesus' words here to suggest some sort of universal salvation idea, believe it or not. That all children get a free ticket to heaven because of their innocence, and since we were all once children, we all get in on that, as it were. But that's proof texting at best. It's not what the passage says or, or what it means. 
Others have taken Jesus' words here to mean that younger children belong to some special class of God's people who have not yet reached an age of accountability where they become responsible for their sin, and that this is who Jesus is talking about in verse 14 when he talks about the kingdom belonging to them. But this is also not what the passage is saying. Still others have understood Jesus to simply be talking about this specific group of children being described in the passage, the one Jesus' uh, disciples had initially stopped from approaching him. So maybe they're the ones that the kingdom of God belongs to, according to the verse. Now, I don't think that's the whole answer, but I, I think it's getting closer. I do think it's partially true. Part of what Jesus does mean here, very literally, is that the kingdom of God belongs to these specific children in a saving and eternal way. And I think we can feel good about that conclusion because as we'll see later in verse 16, Jesus is embracing these children and he's laying his hands on them and he's blessing them. And I can't think of another example in scripture where Jesus blesses someone specifically and then they end up separated from God for eternity in hell. So while I do think these specific children are part of the answer, I don't think they're the the main people group being described by Jesus in verse 14. So that's who he's not describing. But who is he describing then when he says, to such as these belongs the kingdom? Well, verse 15 is going to be really helpful for us in answering that question that rises out of verse 14. And so let's go to verse 15 now and see what we can learn. Jesus begins saying, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A quick footnote here, whenever you see the construction uh, coming from Jesus' lips of truly I say to you, the Greek word underneath that is the word for amen, which is this positively charged pronouncement, a proclamation that expects an affirming response. And that's just how we use it today, amen, right? Like it's this positively charged response. It's a proclamation about something that expects a positive response. It's emphatic. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying indeed or it is true, That's how he's beginning this statement. And so what he's emphatically saying here is, it is absolutely true, and you can be assured of this, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, it being the kingdom. So verse 15 is really helpful for answering that question that comes out of verse 14, isn't it? And I think if we were to add together these ideas that we've been talking about in our interpreting of verse 14 and 15, and then we paraphrased it a bit, I think this is what would begin to come into focus. It would be Jesus saying something like this, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, because it is only those who receive the kingdom of God like these children do who possess a true share in my eternal kingdom. Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, because it is only those who receive the kingdom of God, like these children do, who possess a true share in my eternal kingdom. So if we're right, and if we're interpreting these verses correctly, then the answer to the question of who Jesus is talking about when he says, to such as these belongs the kingdom, is that he's talking about the one singular way in which all of us, whether adult or child, must come into relationship with him. But let's make sure that's a safe assumption. Let's make sure that that's a safe assumption to think that Jesus would use children language to speak about adults and salvation and his kingdom. Because it seems a little unorthodox. It seems a little paradoxical, right? 
And the best way for us to test a biblical conclusion, you guys have heard this before, is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so let's see if we've got any biblical precedent for God, uh, for, the, for the Bible using this language this way, for Jesus using the language this way. We actually don't have to go very far at all. It's probably the same page or the next page in your Bible. It's still in chapter 10, in verses 23 and following, we find Jesus talking with his disciples, again, about the kingdom and about the great danger of idolizing wealth. And he's teaching his disciples this time that those who will not relinquish the God that they've made of their money and possessions will have no share in the kingdom. So let's start reading in verse 23. See what it says. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So what's he calling these grown men that he's talking to in these verses? Children. Yeah, he calls these adult disciples children, which always reads to me a little bit sarcastic. Um, That could just be more my own cynical wiring, but I always read it sarcastic like he's saying to them, okay, idiots, Okay, immature ones, let me use really small words so that your little pea brains can understand. It sounds pejorative, right? Okay, children. Um, but that's not his heart here at all. That's not his heart here at all. Rather, he's calling them children as a term of loving affection, and he just he desperately wants them to get it. He wants them to understand their lowly position as his children. He desperately wants them to understand their need to approach him and to receive the kingdom like children do. And we see Jesus use, uh, we see him call adult disciples children in other verses as well. If you want to take note of a couple to, to dig into this a little bit further later, Matthew eleven twenty five and John thirteen thirty three, we see similar language there. And so now, I think with good biblical precedent in tow regarding this idea that adults being described as children for Jesus' teaching purposes it seems like we can now go back to our main text and feel pretty confident that we've got a good answer to our question of who Jesus is describing when he says, to such as these belongs the kingdom. Our answer takes us back to where we started today when we were talking about the paradoxical teaching that Jesus was doing, that he was trying to get through the disciples' heads. The idea that adults who desire to be disciples of Jesus and partakers of eternal life with God now need to become like children. It's right here in verse 15, then, that this idea begins to bloom into the central proposition that I mentioned at the beginning, our big idea for our whole passage, that salvation requires the faith of a child. Salvation requires the faith of a child. And what a paradigm shift this must have been for them. Since, like we said earlier, uh, children, they weren't valued or esteemed in this society. And now they're being told, in order to have a relationship with God, you need to be like them those who are not esteemed. What a horrifically contrary teaching this must have been for those that Pastor Aaron was describing last week, who had spent their whole lives trying to earn favor with God through heartless religious works and rituals, only to be told now to become lowly like a child if they wanted to have a real relationship with God. But this all begs a little bit of an even bigger question, I think. How does one receive the kingdom of God as a child? It's almost a bigger question. Well, let's think about how children uh, might receive 
the kingdom. Children receive, uh, children recognize rather their state of need and dependence on others. That's one thing that's true about children. Children are generally accepting of their position in life and are comfortable looking outside themselves for instruction and for guidance. Children are eager to please, to follow, to imitate, at least most of the time. Children live by faith, accepting their lot and trusting others for their care. Children take their hurts and problems and needs to their fathers and their mothers, and then they acceptingly submit to the response that they get. Children live without sophistication, having no clout or credit to cling to in order to define themselves as great. One commentator said it so well, I think, when he said this, and it should be on your screens. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. In this, little children, our ideal would be disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. Children come to Jesus with empty hands. Children come to Jesus with empty hands. What would it look like for you to do the same thing in your relationship with Jesus? What must it look like for us to receive the kingdom of God like a child does? It looks like us receiving Jesus and the kingdom of God from a lowly position, from a position of need. Now, you guys know this already, but I'm going to risk in uh, say it again to make sure. The good news is only good news because it first requires bad news, right? The good news of Jesus and his gospel is only good news if it starts with the bad news about us. And this is the bad news, that whether you know it or not, inside you and inside me, there is not one thing that is good in and of ourselves. you believe that? Our hearts are idol factories, St. Augustine rightly said. We worship false saviors, not one of us truly seeking after God, ever, of our own accord. But then while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8 says, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then one by one, in God's sweet timing, he lovingly taps us on the shoulder, and then we turn like a young dependent child turns when he feels the touch of his father, and then we reach for him. We're depraved, we're fallen, we're utterly offensive and repugnant to God apart from the blood of Jesus. And yet when we approach him from this low position, acknowledging his goodness and our utter need for him and dependence on him in order to be redeemed by him, Then, with indignation, Jesus says to anyone who would get between us and him, do not forbid them from coming to me, for they belong to me. They belong to my kingdom. And so my hope and prayer for all of us today is that this reminder of what it means to have an appropriate posture before our holy God is convicting and beneficial. But if there's any of you here today and you're feeling convicted because you know that you've never received Jesus the way that we're describing here, then there's nothing more important than that realization for you today. Verse 15 tells us, really warns us, that if we don't come to Jesus this way, bringing nothing to the table and trusting his finished work on the cross to pay the penalty that we owe for our sins, 
then according to verse 15, we will not enter the kingdom. If you've never approached Jesus with empty hands, if you've never approached him like a child, fully acknowledging your need for his healing and saving and redeeming touch, then that's why God has you here today. That's why God has you here today. And when we respond at the end of the service, you need to come up front and pray with one of us and receive the kingdom of God by giving your life to Jesus humbly, dependently, confidently, just like the children who are approaching Jesus in our passage today. But before we get to responding uh, to what God's teaching us in all this, we've still got a little bit more ground to cover. So let's go back to our text and uh, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, there's a few things that are really interesting here that we want to take note of. First, I think it's really interesting the contrast between what these parents were hoping for when they brought their children to Jesus, which was just a simple touch from him, the verse says, and what they actually received from him. The language here is not of simple touch but of Jesus publicly embracing these children who were looked down on as lowly and unworthy. It's another demonstration of what Jesus has been teaching the disciples concerning the value of children and all those who would come to him like children, in dependence and with empty hands. But it would have been shocking to those watching. Then Jesus goes even further than that, and he gives them a blessing. And based on the tense of the verb, bless, in the Greek here, the picture that starts to come into view, this isn't just some group blessing that's happening. He's actually laying hands on each one of them individually. He's embracing each one individually and then laying his hands on them and then giving them a blessing, each one. What a great encouragement that Jesus offers us his blessing too. When we're willing to come like these children do. What a great comfort that assurance of a share in his kingdom is available to us when we are willing to receive it humbly by submitting our lives to his care and his leading. Well, let's turn to application. With the short time we have remaining, let's talk about how this all applies to us. We've already talked about what this means for those who haven't yet come into a relationship with Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for reconciliation with God. We've talked about how children and adults alike must enter God's kingdom by faith, just like the little children approaching Jesus in our passage, helpless, aware that they are unable to save themselves and that they're totally dependent on the mercy and the grace of God. And as I said earlier, if that's you and you've never approached Jesus this way, then today can be your salvation day. And when we respond, I hope you will come forward and pray with one of us and ask us questions that you might have about that. So that when you leave today, you can leave with confidence that you've been reconciled in a relationship with God through Christ and that you have a share in his eternal kingdom. But for the rest of us, for those of us who have known Jesus for some time, maybe years, maybe decades, how does this apply to us? As I thought about this and prayed about this, this is the big thing that God put on my heart to to share with us in that regard. And it's a question. In what ways in our daily lives do we commit the very same sin as Jesus' first disciples did in the passage? Said another way, in what ways are you and me actually hindering others from coming to Jesus as we go about our daily lives? Now, it's easy when you hear that probably to want to brush off that question as something that doesn't apply to you. But let's stop and think about that. 
It's easy to brush it off because we think of actively rebuking people and stopping them from coming to Jesus like the disciples did by intentionally doing something or saying something to discourage them from growing in faith or coming to know Jesus. And maybe that's true for some of us. Maybe a few of us have have done something like that and God's provoking you right now to repentance. And maybe that's what he's brought you here to, uh, to do business with you on today. And if that's you, you, you know that. But we can also hinder people from coming to Jesus passively. And I want to focus there for a little while. Maybe you can think of examples like the one that I experienced just this last week. When I was at the dentist and God opened up this great door of opportunity where it would have been really easy for me to talk about what I do. And they were, we were talking about why my insurance had changed and they were asking questions about things. And I had this great opportunity to share with them what I do, who my God is, and to really go into that whole conversation. And I even felt, I think, God pushing on me to do it. But I didn't take it. I bailed on the opportunity. I was tired, and uh, my mouth was numb still, and I just didn't really feel like having that conversation with them at the time. And honestly, in that moment, I I really didn't want to risk what their response would be or deal uh, with that in the moment. But here's what I realized. As I left, and that feeling continued to kind of nag at me a little bit that I was supposed to have responded differently, that God wanted me to respond a little differently, I realized that in that moment, I was just like the disciples in our passage today. Now, hear me on this. This is what I realized. I was self-absorbed and being comfortable in my own relationship with Jesus, but hindering others from coming to him, even if passively. That's what happens when we're doing that, right? We're comfortable in our own relationship with Jesus. We're okay. And so when God provokes us to respond and to help others come into relationship with him, sometimes we bail. No harm, no foul for us, right? Because we're already good. But that's hindering people from coming to Jesus nonetheless, even if it's only passively so. Maybe you've had similar experiences like that. Passing on opportunity after opportunity that God brings your way in order to encourage others to come to him. I have to say this, guys. I, I don't mean to be a downer in this section, but, uh, and it's not to sound judgy. But I want us to ask some really hard questions uh, about this idea at this point. Tim Keller and others have said well that you can tell a lot about a person's God by looking at how they spend their money and how they spend their time. And so I'm going to go there. One question would be, when people look at your life, does it look any different than the life of your non-believing neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Are you hindering your neighbor from coming to Jesus through your lack of Christ-like example? That can be a way that we hinder people from coming to Jesus. Here's another one. Would it be evident to anyone looking at your bank statement that you were at all concerned about the lowly? about the widows, about the orphans, or about God's bride, the church who he died for? Is your bank statement, the way that you steward the money God's entrusted to you, a hindrance to those who might otherwise come humbly to Jesus through you and through your example? Here's another one. When people look at the way that you use your God-given talents and passions... Do they see someone who's pouring themselves out in service to others in order to encourage greater faith in Jesus in them? Or does the lack of this heart and service actually for you equate to you hindering others from coming to him? 
Here's one for our whole church body and for us as a body. You know, we've been talking this whole time uh, about the value of children and about how they're predisposed to come to Jesus just the right way, humble, understanding their own dependency, understanding their own neediness, right? Well, what I've been thinking about for me personally and for us as a body is, am I, are we, actively or passively being a hindrance to the children of Sound City Bible Church coming to Jesus? Here's the truth according to statistics. Fully 75% of all those who will ever enter into a relationship with Jesus will do so before they're old enough to legally drink. 75%. 66% of all those who will ever make a profession of faith in Jesus will do so before they finish high school and more than 50% before they leave elementary school. And so statistics are showing us what the Gospel of Mark has already been teaching us today, that here at Sound City Bible Church and at churches like us all around the world who worship Jesus, we have this small time window of opportunity where we have this great potential to make either significant kingdom impact or to passively hinder those who are at the precise age most predisposed to coming into a relationship with Jesus in a saving way. Now, we're doing some really great things in our kids' ministry. We have some amazingly faithful volunteers, and more have been coming, and I'm grateful for that. So this isn't a guilt trip about not serving in kids' ministry if you're not serving in kids' ministry. I promise you, it really isn't. For some of you, it just really isn't the right fit for one reason or another, or you're serving in other areas, and that's great. But i got to share the reality of what goes on back there and what doesn't with you. Sometimes, back in the kids' wing, we're turning families away because we wouldn't have enough volunteers to keep safe adult-child ratios if we were to accept more kids. That happens every other week or so. Sometimes we don't open certain classrooms at all because we don't have anyone to lead them. And so those are, for those classrooms, those ages, those are kids that don't get to hear an age-appropriate lesson about Jesus that week because we don't have anyone to lead them in that. Here's another one. Even in the numbers that we've been sharing with you about wanting 80 volunteers, we've got about 40. It was trying to encourage us to get at least another 40 or so so that we can really with excellence execute on this new plan that we have uh, for serving the kids well back there. I've shared that with you, but what I haven't shared is that that 80 doesn't even account for kids ages 9 to 11 who don't currently really have a class of their own where they can go and hear an age-appropriate lesson about Jesus each week, and they won't in the new model either. They won't in the new model either. Uh, They're phase two, and these 80 volunteers that we've been talking about is folks that we need just to really serve those that are younger than those ages well. So the question that I'm asking myself and I'm asking for us to consider is, are we doing everything we can to make sure that we're not being a hindrance to these little ones coming to Jesus in our own church? I'm just asking you to consider it with me and to consider whether God might be asking you to play even some small part in that ministry. But hear me say, guys, it's with no motive of guilt that I say any of this. I'm just asking you to investigate that with me. And then one final one related to, uh, related to the previous one, related to the one about kids, uh, for us to consider and whether we might be hindering people in coming to Jesus or not is for those of us who in the room are, who are by God's grace parents. 
We quote Spurgeon a lot around here, so I'll quote him again. Spurgeon is quoted as saying that example is a great fashioner of character, and never is this more true than with the kids that God has given so many of us, whose lives he expects us, expects us to steward daily in our homes. And so I'm asking that we as parents, myself included, carefully and prayerfully consider our example to our children so that we might not in any way stir Jesus' indignation or be counted among those who would hinder ones such as these from coming to him. We've considered some heavy questions here, and I think they're worth our time and attention, and I hope you do too. But even more than that, we've been reminded of the great and joyful truth that if we will just come to Jesus with empty hands, in humble dependence and with the sincere heart of a child, that we too can receive the kingdom of God and the sure hope of eternity spent with Jesus. Amen? Well, with that, I do want to invite us into a time of more formally responding to what we're learning here today. And we're going to do that in a number of different ways, as we usually do. First, we're going to respond through giving. And so if our financial stewards would come... We'll begin our response through giving. And you guys hear us say when we do this each week that when we give, we do so with a joyful heart because we're excited about the work that God is doing in and through Sound City Bible Church. And so we steward our finances that God has entrusted to us in the direction of Jesus and his church. And if you're our guest here today, please hear me say you're in no way expected to or obliged to give, uh, but you're welcome to if you'd like. Another way that we're going to respond is uh, I want to offer up some questions that are drawn from the message for us to consider and respond to in our community groups this week and then also in personal reflection. Let me read those for us. Number one, discuss as a group the ways that you might be hindering others from coming to Jesus, either actively or passively. Number two, what would God have you share with your group that you may personally need to repent of with regard to hindering others from coming to Jesus? Number three, how might you turn areas of hindering others into encouragement of others toward Jesus in your daily life? Number four, discuss the ways God may be prompting you as a parent to better encourage the little ones that God's entrusted to your care in the direction of Jesus. Number five, discuss the ways God may be prompting you as part of Sound City Bible Church to encourage and lead the kids of our church into a growing relationship with Jesus. And number six, discuss and share with your group then the most impactful thing uh, that God put on your heart in this study this morning and then what God's asking you to do about it. So hopefully those are enough to stir some good conversation this week. And another way that we're going to respond is, is through communion. We're all who have submitted their lives to Jesus are welcome to come to the table in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. We'll also respond through confession and prayer. So if you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, we'll have some folks from the prayer team down here. Uh, where are we going to be at? Probably over here to our left. And you can come down for that when we all stand together to respond in song and praise of King Jesus and the good news of salvation through him. So why don't we do that now? Let's stand. And I'll pray. And then we'll respond. God, thank you that we get to gather here each week in your name to hear your word proclaimed, to learn your truth, to experience community with your people, and to celebrate that we get to come to you with empty hands like children because of your righteousness rather than some righteousness of our own, which we could never possess. 
God, thanks for your grace and kindness to us. Affirm in us what you've taught us today and help us to respond in every way that you desire us to now. And I pray these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.